Well, thank you. You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21. I can't believe we're finally here. We're at the last chapter in the Gospel of John. We have, we have spent more than a year. We've had roughly 70 to 75 messages. I haven't actually gone through and counted them. And we spent a significant amount of time in the Gospel of John. And one of the things that I really enjoy about this Gospel is that it includes material. It includes events in the ministry of Christ that are not recorded in the other Gospels. And we find this to be true as we look in John chapter 21. This is the final appearance that John chooses to record in his Gospel, and it does carry with it an incredibly important theme. There's so much in here that it isn't possible to do it all in a single message which would make most sense as we look at what really is the preparation for what comes in the latter half of the passage, and that is Jesus dealing with Peter in a personal way and restoring him back to fellowship in a way that would erase in his mind the forgiveness that Christ has extended to him. This chapter is met with significant debate amongst scholars and theologians as to whether or not it was a part of the original gospel writing. So with most passages of scripture that are debated by scholars and theologians, the discussion can be very, very lengthy. It can be very, very academic. It can be very, very uneventful for a lot of people. So I'm going to try to simplify this as much as I can in a concise approach to at least acknowledge the debate that's there and to highlight what is the central issues in this debate. So there are two primary schools of thought as it comes to John chapter 21. The first school of thought is that John did not write it, but it was added at some time later by one of John's associates. And we'll break that down a little bit in just a second. The second school of thought is that John wrote it, but perhaps added it at a later time. And of course, that time would be unknown to us. So the primary reasons that some believe that John didn't write chapter 21 is based upon vocabulary and sentence structure that is found in chapter 21 that is different from the other vocabulary that is used all throughout chapter or chapters 1 through 20. Now that seems like an insignificant thing, but let me share with you where it is important. When we examine the writings of Paul, the 13 letters that are attributed to him, and then we read the letter of Hebrews, there's a very, very different style of writing, very, very different vocabulary, very, very different syntax and structure, and it becomes apparent that these are not the same individuals. Paul did not write Hebrews by almost everybody's agreement. Well, when you look at the writing of an individual person, for example, Paul, you see great consistency throughout his writings. So what some have been able to do is they focused on what is identified as 24 different words within the, within the chapter 21 that John doesn't use anywhere else in the first 20 chapters of his writing. Now, part of that can be explained by the subject matter. For example, fish, an empty net, and prepared different words that are used in 21 that aren't used anywhere else 
because of subject matter. There's also some of the explanation can be attributed to similarities that can be found in the sentence structure that John used in his epistles. For example, if you were to study grammatically 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, you would see differences in those letters that differences as compared to what you would find in the Gospel of John. So it really doesn't become a very significant argument to attribute the writing of chapter 21 to someone other than John just because there are some vocabulary words used and some sentence structure that appears to be very different from the the rest of the Gospel of John. The second reason that some believe this was added later by someone other than John is attributed to what we see in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Since the screens aren't working, flip back in your Bible, and let's read those together. And here's what it says in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, when we read that, I made a very specific connection to these two verses, to what John has just described in taking place in the meetings that Jesus had with his disciples. So there are people who read John 20, verses 30 and 31, and they say this sounds like a concluding statement to the gospel. Jesus has risen, he's appeared, his ascension has been dealt with, the Spirit has been promised symbolically, his great commission has been communicated to his disciples. So in their minds, there's nothing left to say. This sounds to them like a very appropriate ending to John's gospel. But has everything that needs to be said been said. For example, when you look at the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke conclude their versions of the gospel, there are some very important issues that are not dealt with anywhere. And this is perhaps why John chose to deal with them, because no one else had, and because John's gospel is filled with events that are not recorded in any of the other gospels. So one of the primary concerns or questions is, what happened to Peter? Last we heard of Peter, he denied knowing Jesus, being a follower of Jesus three different times. He left in fear. And when we see Jesus reappear to the disciples, there's no communication with Peter. Peter seems to be a very inconsequential person in the mixture of the disciples, even though in the rest of the gospel, he and John and James are all considered to be leaders within the group of disciples. So what happened to Peter? And so John will deal with that in 21. Peter and John, who could be seen as competitive disciples within their leadership responsibilities, are now seen as very complementary disciples as Jesus gives to them his final instructions in John 21. Also, which we probably don't give much thought to, is that Peter's death has likely already occurred by the time John records his gospel. And so in John 21, there is this call to discipleship that Jesus gives to Peter that now readers of the gospel of John will say, oh my goodness, Peter did this to the very end of his life. And so this is a way of seeing fulfillment in Peter's life 
to the demand of discipleship that Jesus placed upon him. And John deals with that here in verse 21. There are a number of other issues that will become more apparent as we look at this together. So for those who believe that John 21 is not a later edition by John or by anyone else, point to this critical factor. This is most important. Never, ever, ever has there been any written manuscript of John found that did not include chapter 21. Now that's important because when you find old manuscripts, you compare those to other manuscripts that have been found. One of the greatest archaeological discoveries was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the, in the 1940s. And in the, the finding of those scrolls and the examination of the manuscripts, they were able to say that what we found is the, most late, is the latest dated writings from Isaiah that we've ever, ever found. And it is 95, more than 95% consistent with everything that we have in Isaiah. So there's consistency, there's collaboration in the discovery of these manuscripts. There's never, ever been found a manuscript of the Gospel of John that did not include chapter 21. By that alone, the overwhelming evidence points to John as the author, not an associate, not as an appendix or an oh, I forgot to do later edition, but it seems to be on the basis of all the evidence that chapter 21 is in its rightful place, regardless of what we would read into chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, which seems to be an ending. So all of that to explain that John 21 is legitimate, it's the real deal, it has come from the hand of John, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is going to deal with things that are critically important, not only for the disciples, but for those who come to follow Christ, and what we learn and what we read together in these important verses. Let's read together John 21, verses 1 through 14. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, and but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now when we read this section of the passage of scripture, some commentators will say that this is out of place chronologically. When you examine what takes place in the other gospel accounts, there's no right place to fit this within their Gospels, and so some say that this feels like it might be out of place. But what John very specifically does is he identifies the uniqueness of this event by describing in detail what had taken place, and then in verse 14 he says this is the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after his ascension. So we know this is not a part of his earthly ministry, but this is a part of Jesus's 40 days where he appeared to the disciples at random times and random places, where John only chooses to record a few of these. Scripture as a whole records 10. I think John only recorded four. So there's something that we learn about this, and as we examine this together in our outline, three major points. Roman number one, the setting is what John begins in this information that he provides. Verse one, after these things... Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. And so the setting, the important part of this is, number one, the time. There isn't a real time frame that we have here in John like we have in the previous recordings of Jesus' appearances to them. For example, he appeared to Mary on the first day, the morning of his ascension. We also learned that in that evening on the first day, Jesus appeared to his disciples. John then tells us that on the eighth day, Jesus appeared to his disciples. But here, it just says after these things, and there's no time connection to when Jesus actually appeared in the context of the 40 days. So after these things is a way of connecting what Jesus has just said in chapter 20. In chapter 20, he gives to them, as a part of his preparation, these proofs about who he is and this call to what it is they're supposed to do. So he gives them undeniable proof in these first two recorded appearances by showing them the scars in his hands and in his side, inviting them to see for themselves that he really is the Lord. Remember, when they see him, these wounds which occurred on Friday are already healed up, indicating that he has victory over the grave and over death. The second thing that he does in these first two appearances is he gives to them their commission. He's going to send them in the name, excuse me, he's going to send them in the same manner that the Father sent him. The Father sent Jesus to accomplish the divine mission of redemption. In the same way, Jesus is sending his disciples, and this is the Great Commission, it is his sending them. He also gives them their power when he breathes on them symbolically and gives to them the Holy Spirit. Now we understand this to be symbolic because clearly in John 21, and what we would read in the first pages of the book of Acts, there has not been the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're still very unsure of what's going to happen to them. They don't exhibit any any of the obvious signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit in them by the confusion they have, the questions they have, the uncertainty that they have. 
Fourthly, he gives them their message, which is very simply the message of forgiveness of sin through Jesus on the cross. This is what Jesus did in his first appearances to the disciples the morning of, or the evening of, and then eight days later. And so what John doesn't tell us here, what we have to try to piece together, at least chronologically, is what is mentioned in Matthew and Mark. In Matthew and Mark, the disciples are told to go to Galilee and wait for Jesus. Now, when you read Matthew Mark, you don't really get any context of how much time has taken place between that instruction and then the subsequent appearance that Jesus has in those gospel accounts. We do know, based upon John, that he appeared that morning, that evening, and then eight days later. So by most accounts, this likely has taken place after the second week of Jesus' ascension and before his final ascension bodily into heaven. So sometime after the second week and before his final ascension that they visibly see for themselves, Jesus makes this appearance to them after these things, after what John has communicated to us in chapter 20. Now the place that we see here, number one, the setting, number two is the place, and this is why we can also assume that at least some time has transpired from what was recorded in the first two appearances. We see the place is the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is also called the Sea of Galilee. So if Jesus told the disciples to go to Galilee and wait for him there, and John records here that now they are at the Sea of Galilee, it's obviously not Jerusalem where the first two appearances have taken place. So the disciples have gone on to Galilee, and apparently they have been waiting for the Lord. We don't know how long. It's been a day. It's been a week. It's been a couple of weeks. We really don't know. But they have gone, and they are waiting. And now we see, in addition to the the time and the place, we see the people that are involved here. Verse 2 tells us that Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. So John records for us here, or at least gives us the identity of seven of the eleven disciples that are a part of this story specifically. But in verse one, John uses the collective term disciples. So it wouldn't be impossible to to infer from this that the entire group of eleven are in Galilee waiting on the Lord, but Simon and the others that are individ- that are individually mentioned here are not going to be a part of the next piece in your outline, and that is the event. The event is this little fishing trip that they're going to take. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So we know for sure that there are seven people who went on this fishing expedition. It's possible that eleven, that all 11 disciples are there, but not all have chosen to go on the fishing trip. It isn't clear from the gospel accounts. So if we look at what was instructed in Matthew and Mark, that Jesus told the disciples to go to Galilee, we can assume that they did so, because here they are at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. But it looks like there might be a smaller group of these 11 that have undertaken the task of going fishing. So led by Peter, the seven that are named have decided to go fishing rather than continuing to wait on Jesus, who perhaps in their mind is a no-show. 
We don't know why he's not here. We don't know when he's going to come. Maybe he couldn't find us. We don't really know. But this is all speculation. It could be the reason that they went fishing was very simply that they were hungry. It could have been that they needed to sell some fish and make some money. It could have been they needed something to occupy their time. They were a little bit bored. After all, many of these guys were professional fishermen. So what do we do when there's nothing to do? We will tend to do what comes most natural for us. It might be work. It might be our favorite hobby or our favorite form of recreation. But we can at least assume that for these seven individuals, they decided that waiting had accomplished its purpose and now they needed to go fishing. So we find out from these, from John, that these seven who are professional fishermen have gone out and fished all night and they haven't caught a single thing. Now, this brings us to the next point in our outline and that is the appearance. Verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So there's no indication how or when Jesus showed up. John wasn't there. He didn't see him vaporize. He didn't see him come down over the hill. He didn't see anything. All he knows is that they see a figure on the beach and they don't know who it is and they don't know how this individual has gotten there. It could have been that Jesus just materialized just like he did when he went through the closed doors. Remember, Jesus' resurrected body was no longer bound by time or space and he could do whatever he wanted to do as it related to what constricts us in terms of time and space. So they are some distance away. They see this figure on the beach. They don't recognize who it is. And Jesus calls out to them in verse 5. Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. So the term here, children, isn't an insult or a challenge. It can be translated as the word friend, and this is one of these 24 words that you don't find anywhere else in the Gospel of John, it can also be used like the common term for guys. Hey guys, did you find a fish? Or hey boys. But they've been fishing all night long. They haven't caught a single thing. And again, these are professional fishermen. And Jesus is in the process of continuing to prepare them for their upcoming apostolic ministry as he sits on the beach omnisciently knowing all that has transpired with a divine purpose and a divine plan in place. This ministry that they are going to very soon begin to undertake, in this ministry they will be confronted with their own weaknesses, their own fears, their own insecurities, their hardships, their persecution. And even though Jesus has told them all that he has, they're still not fully prepared. He's going to continue to instill in them the peace that he promised during the farewell discourse, the reality that when he appeared to them, he came in peace, peace be with you. He's sending them out on this mission. He's going to do so in the context of his peace. And it is in this final event that they're going to experience together Jesus is going to demonstrate his ability to do what they cannot do for themselves. This brings us to number two in our outline, and this is the instruction. The instruction that Jesus gives to them from the distance on the beach 
is very simply this, verse 6a. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So the instruction is very simply, cast once more. Now, John doesn't record this, but I would imagine that there had to have been some kind of conversation taking place within the boat. Who's this guy think he is? Does he not know that we are professional fishermen? Does he not know that we've got this big net? Does he not know we've been out here all night? What in the world is throwing the net on the right side of the boat one more time possibly going to accomplish? Hey, I'm really tired. I've had my fill, but if you want to do it, you can go ahead and do it yourself. I would imagine there had to have been some conversation like that, or at least some thoughts like that. I know there's been times where I've been in the garage working on something, and I'll be incredibly frustrated, and a well-wisher will come out, and they will make a suggestion, and it's the most basic suggestion you would have ever heard in your life, and I'll just look at them and go, really? Did you not think I wouldn't have thought to plug it in first? Or to make sure the battery was connected? Do you think I'm an idiot? I mean, that's human nature, right? So here are these professional fishermen who have been at it all night long and they haven't caught a thing and there's this guy on the beach saying, cast it out once more on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So for reasons we don't know, they decide to follow the instruction and we discover the catch. Verse 6b, so they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Now let me pause right there. This isn't in my notes. But when you and I live life in the presence of sin, in a world full of people who are dominated by the power of sin, and we are confronted with our own weaknesses, our own fears, our own insecurities, our own sense of hardship, and perhaps even persecution for doing what God has called us to do, there is this voice from heaven that says, keep going, don't stop. But in our humanity, we want to say, are you crazy? I am not an idiot. I'm not going to continue to beat my head on this wall day after day, week after week, and yet God still calls us to follow and obey. I believe that this is a part of what is instilled in the hearts of the disciples as they will begin very quickly to put together what will be a life-changing apostolic ministry. Cast the net one more time, on the right side of the boat, and you will catch fish. And this is exactly what happens. Now, this is the second time in the Gospels that Jesus has given to these men the instruction to throw the net one more time. In both instances, they'd fished all night. They haven't caught a single thing. And in both instances, when they followed the instruction, they caught a miraculous number of fish. Luke 5 tells us of this occasion, which was very early in Jesus' ministry. And I would imagine that it would instill within these men the ability to trust what Jesus says, even though it seems like it doesn't make any sense to me, I'm going to do it because he told me to, and look at the result. So here we are on the other end of Jesus' ministry. 
his death, his burial, his resurrection, and these handful of appearances. And after they've caught nothing, he tells them, throw it out one more time and you will find the catch. Again, Jesus is going to demonstrate his provision for their needs and their dependency upon him. We would do well to remember this. Jesus is sufficient to meet our every need, and we are to live our lives in a constant dependency upon him. No matter how accomplished we might feel, or no matter how celebrated we are by other people, you and I must always remember that we are dependent upon the Lord. Now, these are professional fishermen who have caught nothing until they have this very specific instruction They need to be reminded of their need to depend upon him as they undergo their apostolic ministry. And after they have caught this enormous number of fish, there is immediately, next in your outline, the recognition. The recognition is found in the first part of verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. John knew right away. He didn't recognize the figure. He didn't recognize the voice. He just recognized the result of obeying what that individual on the beach just told us to do. We've caught nothing. He says, cast it one more time. And here we have this incredible number of fish. And John instantly recognized that it was the Lord. John was no dummy. He figured it out first Only Jesus could provide so specifically and so supernaturally. Cast it on the right side of the net. Not go out another 30 feet. Not throw in the water and hold it or bob it up and down. Nothing. A very specific and simple instruction. And this is exactly what they did. And even though they couldn't recognize who the figure was on the beach, John knew exactly who it was. And next in our outline we see the response. John knows that it is the Lord. We read in the latter part of verse 7. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. John was quick, excuse me, John was quick to perceive, and Peter was quick to act. That was always the way it worked within the relationships of the disciples. Peter was impulsive and very responsive. And it appears that John was more, was more uh, introspective and thoughtful about what was going on around him. So since Peter was wearing only his garments for fishing, he wasn't totally naked. He just was stripped down to his inner garments because he needed to be unencumbered for the fishing he was about to do. He put on his outer garment and he jumped into the water and began this swim to shore. Now the reason that, Jesus put on, that uh, Peter put on the outer garment was... It was inappropriate to greet anybody with just your inner garments on. So even though the swim would be more difficult and more laborious for him, he put their outer garment on anyway and immediately jumps into the water and begins the swim. He couldn't wait to be in Jesus' presence and this swim before him was not going to be an obstacle. Verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Now, I don't know that I've ever swam 100 yards, but I would imagine that if I looked at 100 yards, I probably wouldn't want to swim it. 
Certainly not after a night of fishing, and certainly not in what would be typical garment wear for a Jew. But nonetheless, Peter had to get into the water immediately and make haste to the shore. Now verse 6 tells us that the catch was so large that they couldn't pull it into the boat, and so Peter left the other man in the boat to drag this net to shore as he made the way by swimming. Now this brings us to the third point in our outline, and that is the fellowship. Verse 9, so when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. So what was always a part of a fellowship within a Jewish custom would be some kind of a meal. Very common. It created intimacy. It expressed friendship and closeness. And so we have this fellowship and we see that the preparation, the next in your outline, is already done for them. The fire is already going, and there's already fish that is cooking along with bread, and Jesus has already begun the preparation for this time of fellowship, and Jesus is going to continue to serve them. Jesus said many times, I did not come to be served but to serve and become a ransom for many. When Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room and inaugurated the Lord's Supper, he served them by taking the form of a servant and washing their feet. Here is the resurrected Lord serving them by preparing this breakfast for them. He didn't sit back in his position and say, fix me some fish, fetch me some wood, fetch me some water. He prepared for them. And I believe that in this preparation, as they've gathered together and they see the fish and they see the bread, I believe there is a reminder. This is next in your outline. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you now have caught. So when I read this, I immediately thought of the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus was with his disciples and had spent the day teaching, and there were at least 5,000 men, which meant there were in the neighborhood of 20,000 plus people, and it was lunchtime, and they said, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus said, go collect and see what you get. And what Jesus did was he took the bread, he took the fish, he blessed it, and he just continued to multiply it in their presence and fed everybody. And there there was 12 times more left over than what they began with. So here what we have is we have Jesus preparing this meal of fellowship of fish and bread. They have nothing to bring except the miraculous catch that Jesus just enabled them to have. And I believe there's a very significant reminder of the feeding of the 5,000 when there wasn't going to be enough to feed the group. And Jesus prepares abundantly with 153 large fish to feed the disciples that have gathered. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, The net was not torn, unlike Luke 5 where the net was torn. Here the net is not torn. What they couldn't pull into the boat, Peter has now pulled up onto land 
so they would have some fish to add to the meal that Jesus had prepared for them. The number of fish and the untorn net are very simple, insignificant eyewitness details that emphasize John's presence there, not an associate, not a story he had heard. And there isn't any hidden meaning over these number of fish, which is funny because most commentators talk about the numerous speculations that have existed over the number of fish. You know, there are these people who get into numerology and they'll quote something from Ezekiel or something from Isaiah and they'll say the 153. So on the first day of the fifth year and the third, and it's just crazy. It's just not there. 153 fish is just simply an eyewitness detail that corroborates that John was there when this took place. So verse 12a, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And so now we come to the meal After this long night of fishing and perhaps a night filled with questions because Jesus had told them to go to Galilee and to wait for him and he has not come. They've fished all night long. They haven't caught anything. And now here they are in the presence of Jesus. They're about to have this meal with him. A lot of unanswered questions. A lot of uncertainty. And Jesus invites them to sit down and eat. Notice what we see here. And this is very, very surprising. Next in your outline, the apprehension. The apprehension in this fellowship meal is thick. That old saying, it's so thick you could cut it with a knife. Look what it says here in verse 12b. None of the disciples who ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Now, does it seem surprising that John recognized a miraculous catch coming from the instruction of from Jesus, Peter knowing that it was Jesus and jumping into the boat, and then them gathering on the land and having this meal and sitting before Jesus and seeing Him. They know that it's Him, and yet it says they dare not ask Him, Who are you? There's this tension that exists between the disciples and what they see and the lack of consistency and what that means for them collectively and personally. Even though they know it is the Lord, it is almost as if they want to ask the question, is it really you? Remember, they've seen Him on the cross. They saw Him go into the tomb. They saw Him already appear. They've seen the scars. They've heard Him talk. They've watched Him come into the room through a closed door. They believe that He is alive, and yet there's this incompleteness in their ability to process the reality of what it is they are seeing with their own eyes. It would almost be like winning the lottery and being told you've won a million dollars, and it's sitting there in front of you, and you know it's real money, and you go, wow, did we really win this? You know, am I dreaming? You know, is this real? That's kind of the position that the disciples are in as they, as they are sitting down here and having this meal with the Lord. Now, as we look back over 2,000 years of history, it's very difficult for us to put ourselves into the position of the disciples because we look backward with great certainty at the centrality of the resurrection and what it means for us And yet, don't we in the same way look at the events in our life and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do this. God, I don't know what you're up to. God, I'm not sure why this is happening. 
We believe, yet our belief is still incomplete. And I believe this is a big part of what's taking place here. They see him, they really believe it's him, and yet there is this desire to say, is it really you? Are you really alive, even though that, that, it, that it is true? So their faith is still developing, even in the presence of the risen Lord, and this apprehension is so strong that they don't dare respond to his invitation to eat. Did you see that? Jesus has invited them to come and eat. Here's what we read in verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. It would be like inviting someone into your home and setting this elaborate meal on your table and saying, come and eat. And they just stand still and just look at you. And you're like, come and eat. And they just stand there. And so you reassure them that it all is well. And you take the food to them so that they can eat. This is what takes place here, is that Jesus took the bread and the fish and gave it to them because of the apprehension in their heart over the reality of what it is they see and experience and the challenge that is for their faith. This is what's going to be a part of their experience regularly throughout their apostolic ministry. They know Jesus was raised from the dead. They know that He promised the Holy Spirit. They know that He gave this commission to go. They know that in Christ there is a forgiveness of sin. But their faith is always going to be developing as they come against these things in their lives. And it's the exact same truth for you and I today. All that we say we believe about God, He is sovereign, He's omnipotent, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent. And when life squeezes, we say, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I don't like this. Why? Because our faith is incomplete. And this is exactly what takes place with the disciples. And so even at Jesus' invitation to come and eat, they're standing still, and Jesus takes the first step and brings the food to them. John concludes, our section here in verse 14 by saying, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now John doesn't give any more specific details about the meal itself, but it seems like as we continue to read through John 21 and as we make the probable assumption that this is a continuing experience, that the whole purpose of this gathering is going to be centered on the restoration of Peter. It's not because Peter is more important or more special than any of the other disciples, but it's because Peter is a leader, and Peter's going to have a very visible and a very significant ministry as he begins to serve the Lord in just a couple of weeks after the day of Pentecost. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the simplicity of this account, and yet the deep, the depth that is there and what it means. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts in the hours and days ahead about this passage. I pray that we would come to grapple with the apprehension the disciples felt and how sometimes we can feel apprehensive about coming into your presence. We pray that you would continue to teach us as We recognize the incompleteness of the faith of the disciples and yet they saw you and walked with you 
experienced the miracles and yet their faith was incomplete. And we read a finished revelation, a completed product, knowing all that we know about you and yet our faith is still in need of developing. So Father, I pray that the words we've looked at and the words that we'll examine in the days ahead will be used by you to continue to develop our faith, to deepen our love for you, our trust in you, and embolden us to obey and follow you, no matter how senseless it might sound. Father, how thankful we are that we serve a risen Lord. How thankful we are that you are victorious over the grave and over death. We thank you, Father, that in our union through Christ, we have been freed from the consequence and the power of sin. Even though we still live in its presence, you've given to us victory. I pray that we would continue to learn what that means and appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that we can live victoriously for you each and every day. God, we give you thanks for the great God that you are, for the great privilege it is to know you as our Father, to be your children. We pray that you would accept our our praise and our devotion and that it would bring to you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.